Warning, this episode contains content that may be disturbing to some viewers. Viewer discretion is advised. Experimentation, an effective way to learn about the world around us and everything in it. But the thirst for knowledge can become a sinister game when the ends justify the means. Wendell Johnson was a psychologist at the University of Iowa who dedicated most of his life to trying to discover the cause and cure for stuttering. Though he had made many great contributions to his field, there was one black mark that would haunt his name forever. Johnson conducted a study that would try to discover the relationship between a person's thoughts and feelings in relation to their stuttering, and if it could be a learned behavior. Though the study would reveal a great amount of information regarding this relationship, some argued that he went too far to obtain it. Johnson selected one of his graduate students named Mary Tudor to conduct the experiment. With a competent student to gather research, all he needed now were test subjects, and a nearby orphanage would suffice for that. So Mary gathered her supplies and ventured to the orphanage on January 17, 1939. That day, the experiment that would come to be known as the Monster Study began. Mary had gathered the students into two different groups, ones who were known stutterers and the others who were not stutterers and could speak quite well. The group with children that stuttered received positive attention and were told that their stuttering was just a phase and that they'd get through it and not to listen to anybody who might have criticized them. The group of well-spoken children received negative attention. They were lied to and told that they showed traits of a child that could become a stutterer. They were told that they must not stutter at any cost they must not stutter. The children, so afraid that they might stutter or even slip up on a word, began to mentally shut down. Their grades dropped off. They would develop nervous habits like snapping their fingers if they felt they might have trouble with a word. Some even refused to speak at all, fearing that they would become a stutterer if they tried. The children disconnected from their best friends, hardly speaking to them anymore. One child even ran away. Mary Tudor had felt remorse for what she had done. She went back to the orphanage three times after the experiment had ended. She told the once well-spoken children that they weren't ever meant to stutter and that they could speak freely, but the damage had already been done. In a letter to Wendell Johnson, she wrote, I believe that in time they will recover, but we certainly made a definite impression on them. Unfortunately, she was only half right. Their impression was such a powerful one that some of the children lived with the damage from the study for the rest of their lives. The University of Iowa publicly apologized for the monster study in 2001, 62 years after it had all started. Harry Harlow was a psychologist who studied maternal bonding, or as he liked to call it, the nature of love. He would rear newborn monkeys with surrogate mothers, often made of metal and wrapped in towels. Some of the surrogates were designed to be abusive, scaring or hurting the newborn monkeys. Harlow wanted to determine whether the newborn monkeys were motivated by food or affection, and he came to discover that yes, they were motivated by affection more than food. Harlow lost his wife in 1971 and was treated before returning to work, having taken the loss very hard. But when he came back, his peers noticed that Harlow was different. His demeanor had changed. He abandoned his research in maternal attachment 
and began diving into the studies of depression and isolation. This is when Harlow would take a sudden and sinister turn. He took 12 newborn monkeys and divided them into three groups of four. All of them were stuck in different isolation chambers, the first group for 30 days, the second group for six months, and the third group for a year. All of the monkeys had become seriously disturbed. The ones kept in isolation for a year barely moved once they were released. They would not play, they would not socialize, some wouldn't eat and starve to death, they were even unable to mate. But this would not deter Harlow. He developed what he called the rape rack, where he could tie the isolated female monkeys so that male monkeys could mate with them. After the females had given birth, Harlow discovered more about what the isolation had done to them. The mothers were unable to care for their offspring and would often violently abuse them. Harlow wrote, not even in our most devious dreams could we have designed a surrogate as evil as these real monkey mothers were. And he was right. One mother even pinned her baby down to the floor while she chewed off his hands and feet. Another crushed her baby's skull. But Harlow was not satisfied. He felt that the test didn't produce a true feeling of depression for the monkeys, so he developed something that he affectionately referred to as the pit of despair. Harlow wasn't using newborn monkeys anymore, no. He would wait until the monkeys were old enough and attached to their mothers. That's when he would rip them away and put them into a new type of isolation chamber. The chamber consisted of an inverted pyramid with slippery sides and a mesh top. The monkey would be placed in the point of the pyramid and would spend the first day or two trying to climb out, but would be unable to. Eventually, they'd give up and huddle into a corner and remain there. Even the happiest of monkeys were severely damaged upon being released. Harlow had projected his personal anguish onto his studies, and for this, has gone down in history as a monster. General Shiro Ishii was the chief medical officer of the Japanese army. He was a secretive man who seemed to be more entertained with hurting people than helping them. He was eventually put in command of an epidemic prevention department called Unit 731. Ishii oversaw a special project which involved human experimentation. In this way, he could test the horrific effects of chemical attacks on human beings and have a front row seat for the whole thing. But Ishii's curiosities went far beyond just that. He assembled test subjects comprised of prisoners such as bandits and political activists, but this wasn't a vast enough sample for him. So he saw no problem in taking in people who were rounded up by the military police for suspicious activities. These included elderly people, pregnant women, and even infants. Some of the prisoners would be infected with various diseases and promptly cut open so that the scientists could observe the effects of the disease on the organs. Men, women, children, and babies were subject to these vivisections, where they were not only kept alive during the procedure, but they were performed without any form of anesthesia. The test subjects were fully awake and aware while they were being cut open, and there was nothing they could do to stop it. To study blood loss, prisoners would have limbs amputated and sometimes reattached to the opposite sides of their bodies. Some prisoners would have certain organs removed before being sewn back up, such as their stomachs, lungs, liver, and parts of their brains. Other prisoners would be raped and infected with syphilis and gonorrhea to study the effects of the diseases. Some were tied to posts and used as target practice for weapons, such as chemical weapons, grenades, or even flamethrowers. Subjects would be deprived of food and water to determine how long it would take them to die. Some were placed in high-pressure chambers until they died. Others were stuck in centrifuges and spun until death. And some others were simply buried alive. 
After World War II had ended, Douglas MacArthur granted immunity to Ishii and the physicians of Unit 731 in exchange for their research data. Ishii had walked free of his heinous crimes and died from throat cancer at the age of 67. According to his daughter, he converted to Catholicism shortly before his death. Some people are willing to do anything to produce a result, to learn what they want to know. Hopefully you never become the means to justify their ends. But I suppose you never know. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Humankind would be nowhere without science. It's all around us in every aspect of our lives, but just like life, sometimes science can get a little crazy. Some people love dogs so much that they just wish they could have more than one without having to clean up after multiple dogs. Well, perhaps Vladimir Demikov was the man for them. Having passed away in 1998 at the age of 82, Vladimir lived a very interesting scientific life. He was a Soviet scientist who was known mostly for pioneering the science behind organ transplant. He worked with animals between the 1930s and 1950s, transplanting hearts and lungs. Christian Bernard, who was known for having performed the world's first heart transplant operation from one person to another in 1967, considered Vladimir to be his teacher. There was never a doubt that Vladimir was far ahead of his time, and profoundly useful in his field, we have much to thank him for today. But for his own reasons, Vladimir didn't exactly stop at organ transplant, he moved on to head transplant, specifically for dogs. Vladimir created two-headed dogs, sometimes with six legs, by using the upper portion of a smaller dog and transplanting it on top of a larger one. Both heads were operational after their surgery. Unfortunately, or fortunately, the dogs would often die only days later. The longest surviving creature lived only a month. Vladimir lived out his remaining years and died in obscurity, sometimes for obvious reasons referred to as a mad scientist. Two organisms fused into one, or at least in part. Would you ever expect those organisms to be a spider and a goat? It's not quite as horrifying as it sounds. For a long time, scientists have been trying to figure out a way to create spider silk. The specific type that is strongest is known as dragline silk, the kind used to catch a spider as it drops. It's strong, tough, flexible, and fares well in the elements. Quantitatively, it's stronger than steel and Kevlar. But a single strand of spider silk is very easily broken. And gathering up enough of it to make a piece even comparable to a piece of rope, say, is a monumental challenge to say the least. So scientists look to making the spider silk themselves. If spiders won't work, then they have to move on to the next most logical thing, goats. This is a photo of a specific goat. It looks like a goat, behaves like a goat, does all the things that goats do, aside from one startling fact. This goat, genetically speaking, is part spider. Scientists were able to take a gene that encodes dragline spider silk and place it with the milk production DNA of the goat. This new genetic circuit was then inserted into an egg and implanted into a mother goat. The result is a new hybrid creature, a spider goat. 
Now, instead of just producing milk, the goats also produce spider silk protein, and it's extracted from their udders just like the milk is. It's then processed, and the spider silk is spooled out of the milk onto a reel like thread. Though it hasn't been able to reach the exact traits of real spider silk, it is still rather impressive. The head of the project claims that one of its many uses would be for ligament repair, as the spider silk can be inserted into the human body without causing inflammation or illness. They continue to research even more uses. Mind control is the holy grail for a number of scientific fields, and possibly also a number of governments. And it's entirely possible to at least a degree. Jose Delgado was a professor of physiology at Yale University and is remembered for his incredible work in mind control. He was able to accomplish amazing things by exploring and utilizing electrical stimulations effects on certain regions of the brain. Jose was known as a technological wizard with many inventions, perhaps the best known one being what he called a stimosiever. With it, he was able to achieve a profound level of mind control using brain implants. Jose worked with his stimosievers on human volunteers and was able to not only control their body movement, but their emotions as well. But what he was best known for was his experiment with a bull. He had the bull's brain implanted with a stimosiever and stepped into the ring with it. The bull, infuriated, charged at Jose. All he had to do was press his transmitter, and the bull stopped dead in its tracks, having lost its aggression. Jose, being a theatrical man, performed this multiple times for shocked onlookers. Jose opened up an entire new way as to how humankind can overcome and defeat depression or seizures. Jose passed away in 2011 at the age of 96. There is little more precious than the life of a child. They are wrapped in innocence and are dependent on their guardians. So naturally, money can be made off of them, but some inventions just aren't the best of ideas. We learn that a little peace and quiet is priceless. In our first case, down will come baby. A mother's job is never done. In the 1920s and 30s, that was really no different. However, back then they had slightly different tactics with how they dealt with it. Mothers today, just like yesterday and all days before, were increasingly stressed out by their children, only wishing they could maybe put them safely aside while they went about their daily routine. You see, families fortunate enough to live on a farm in these days had a lot of room to wander around. The land and animals offered a lot of activities, even if it meant just sitting in the yard for a little fresh air. For city dwellers, however, these options didn't exist. A squealing baby didn't have anywhere to go when you lived in a high-rise above bustling city streets. But a woman by the name of Emma Reed in 1922 would offer a unique solution. A way to get rid of frequent distractions and allow the child to get a little bit of fresh air. The invention was referred to as a baby cage. And much like modern air conditioners, it was attached to a window and set up so that the baby could safely be suspended hundreds of feet into the air and out of your hair. 
But unlike an air conditioner, a baby cage served its purpose through any season. The patent itself claims that the roof is specially designed to keep snow from landing on your baby in the event that you'd like to put it outside to see a blizzard. Needless to say, baby cages became a thing of the past, which can't be said for our next case. House Arrest. So say you're not too keen on putting your baby in a cage suspended hundreds of feet into the air. That makes sense. But what do you do then? Children have a lot of energy and enjoy things like running and climbing. But what if the mother needs a bit of alone time and she doesn't want her child destroying everything it touches? Well, naturally, you shackle their ankles together. This invention, known in its patent as an infant restraining device, would allow children to take small steps on their own, but would make running and climbing impossible. Sure, it might not have offered fresh air like the baby cages did, but I have this sneaking suspicion that these devices weren't really made for the child's benefit. Of course, toddlers aren't best known for their skills in coordination or balance, so the baby shackles didn't end up doing as well as it had been hoped. Parents were again forced to supervise their children. Who would have thought that locking a child's ankles together would bring about injury? You might think it's cruel and unusual to subject a child to a device that's commonly used on prisoners. However, you'd be a bit off base. It's actually the other way around. The infant restraining device was patented in 1953, but the patent itself makes reference to it being used as a restraining device for prisoners in 1977, 24 years after it was developed for children. I suppose I'm not being exactly fair. There are plenty of mothers out there who don't want to just get away from their children. In fact, some mothers never want their children to grow up at all. Well, we've got just the thing. Sort of. In our next case... All dolled up. Losing one's baby teeth is an important experience. It's a sign that the child is growing up, and for a lot of mothers, that's worth remembering. Children are often very much pleased with the idea of losing a tooth and forfeit it immediately to a parent so that they might get some money under their pillow from the tooth fairy. While some mothers might just discard the tooth and others might save it in a jar for a while, this invention takes things to the next level. It's a figurine designed to display lost teeth and hair from a child so that a mother may, in a way, recreate her child's younger years and save its innocence forever in the form of a horrifically creepy doll. Ah, what mothers will do to honor those baby years, but that can't even compare to what we have for our next case. Mommy's Leftovers. Sometimes the greatest gift is the one you've made yourself, but you might not know exactly what I'm talking about yet. Teddy bears are perhaps the most well-known toy a child receives, and they often receive it at birth. A first best friend and loyal companion, Teddy is there for the long haul. But some store-bought bear to commemorate the birth of a human into the world? Nah, for some mothers, that's just not organic enough. A man by the name of Alex Green changed this, however, 
Through a lot of hard, passionate work, he developed a new kind of teddy bear. A teddy bear that wouldn't come from some dusty old department store. A teddy bear that would be a gift from the heart. Or better yet, the placenta. That's right, this teddy bear here is made out of placenta. Alex Green was shocked that placenta was simply discarded as medical waste when so many women in the world still eat their placenta after birth. So he thought, why not find another use for it? So he invented a kit. The kit would show the mothers how to turn their own home into some kind of twisted Build-A-Bear workshop from hell. It begins by laying out the placenta and cutting it in half. Naturally, it's still moist and jiggly, and you can't very well stitch a teddy bear with that. So you must rub salt into the organ to cure it. After that, you're one step closer to horrifying your teenager when you finally reveal to him what his childhood toy that he constantly stuck in his mouth was actually made out of. After it's properly cured, the placenta is carefully stitched together as directed and filled with rice. It's said to have a texture between leather and suede and is extra bendy. I'm not sure about you, but store-bought is just fine for me. Everyone believes that their mother just might be crazy at some point in their lives, and it just turns out that some of us are right. They say it takes a village to raise a child, or perhaps just a few animals. This week we discuss children raised in the wild. Everyone has a definition of what home means to them. Perhaps that home is a jungle. This was the case for one girl named Rocham, who was born in 1979 in Cambodia. Though little is known of her childhood, Rocham's family had reported their eight-year-old daughter missing when the child left her house to tend a herd of buffalo in the Ratanakiri province in 1988. It would be nearly two decades until anyone would hear from her. For years, her father believed she was killed by forest animals until she was unexpectedly found and immediately captured on January 13, 2007. A man from a nearby village realized that he was missing food from his lunchbox, so he decided to investigate, and that's when he came across a naked, bone-thin girl in the jungle. Caught by the man and a group of other villagers, Rocham was taken to the village of Ratanakiri for further evaluation. Police described the frightened and severely malnourished woman as a mixture of half-woman and half-animal. News spread of the jungle woman, and a family quickly came forward insisting the jungle woman was their long-lost daughter. Though DNA tests were offered to the family, her father, Sal Lu, had noticed specific scars on her body that matched to their missing child. Rocham was kept in the village, where her family and other members of the village attempted to teach her vital human skills. With no luck, Rocham would yell and scream as she disliked her new habitat. She frequently attempted to remove any clothing that was given to her and lacked communication skills entirely. When asking for food, she simply pointed to her mouth and she was unable to walk like a human being. Rocham found the chicken coop to be a place where she could rest instead of a regular bed inside of her family home. On May 25, 2010, it was reported that Rocham had escaped after multiple attempts to return back to the jungle. However, for 11 days, she was stuck inside of a latrine until someone heard her crying for help. She has since been kept in the village and continues to learn human skills, though it is taking her a while to adjust. She is reported to be seen by psychologists once a week and is able to sit and have meals with her family most days.
Having lost his family, this boy found a new family in a rather unlikely way. John Sembunya was born in Uganda. Little is known about his family life and exact date of birth, but at just three years old, John watched in fear as his father murdered his mother. Frightened, he fled into the jungle in hopes of hiding from the brutality his mother endured at the hands of his father. Away from his village, John went on to adapt a new life with African green monkeys who had aided him in understanding their mannerisms. After three years, John was able to climb trees, communicate with the family of monkeys, and survive off of nuts and berries he could find within the jungle. In 1991, a village girl named Millie stumbled across a strange boy while she was out scavenging for food in the jungle. Shocked, the child ran back and brought the attention to tribe members living nearby. Upon returning to the exact location, villagers not only found John, they also encountered a large family of monkeys surrounding the feral child. As villagers attempted to bring John back to the tribe, the monkeys were at his defense to keep him with them. Enraged, the animals began throwing objects, but were unlucky as people persisted in taking him back with them. When brought back to the village and examined, it was noticed that John suffered from hypertrichosis, which caused him to grow an abnormal amount of hair on his face and body. John was escorted to the Kamuzinda Christian Orphanage, where he was adopted by Paul and Molly Waswa, founders of the Child Care Foundation in Uganda. It took nearly a decade before John was accustomed to family life around humans. Since his return to society, John continues to live with his new parents and family at the Foundation. Now able to engage with other humans, he discovered his talent in singing and is now part of the Pearl of Africa Children's Choir in Uganda. Born into a destructive family life, this girl turned to dogs for survival. Oksana Malaya was born on November 4, 1983 in Ukraine. When examined at birth, doctors concluded that the newborn was perfectly healthy with no signs of physical or mental disabilities. Life was uneasy for Oksana and her siblings as both parents were alcoholics. Neglected, Oksana was very young when her parents failed to realize they left her outside in the yard for the evening. Cold and unable to keep warm, Oksana crawled into the family farm kennel where she slept with a pack of dogs. Lacking the basic needs for survival, Oksana began to rely on the dogs for love and support. Mimicking canine behavior, she began to consume scraps of food just like a dog and engage in communicating with each dog by barking, sleeping on the ground outside, and walking on all fours. For five years, Oksana no longer understood human values and was reported to authorities when a neighbor noticed her living with animals in a kennel. Oksana was just seven and a half years old at the time of the report. Once in the hands of authorities, Oksana was taken from her home and put into foster care. Doctors were astonished by Oksana. Speech therapists and child psychologists were able to teach Oksana basic language skills. However, it would take years to subdue her canine behaviors. The attention of a feral child caused widespread media attention towards Oksana's incredible case. Documentaries, news reports, and TV show appearances brought light to her past. Now an adult, Oksana lives with her caretakers in a specialized nursing home for adults with mental disabilities. Though she has picked up on basic human interaction, Oksana is still considered intellectually impaired and would not be able to survive on her own. Oksana has kept in touch with her siblings and says it's become a dream of hers to reunite with her biological mother. That's all for this episode. Remember, you may not believe it, but anything is possible in a world so seriously strange. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows 
and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.